Uh, thank you, Molly, for that wonderful interactive telling of the greatest day in human history. So what, what just happened is Molly invited us into the experience or the story of some of those that were there that morning in Jerusalem. I love entering into the story of others. And if you know me, you know that I love it when you enter into mine. I'm currently reading a Pulitzer Prize winning novel about a young man who is traveling the globe in search of the best waves that he can find. As a surfer, I'm intrigued, but part of it is the way that he writes. I feel like I'm literally his plus one in all of these huts as he goes from Hawaii to Fiji to Australia to Indonesia. This morning, the Gospel of John invites us to enter into the experience of seemingly the most unlikely person in Jerusalem to be the first witness of the most important event in human history. Not Jesus' mother, not his disciples, not the religious leaders that had him killed, but Mary, the one from Magdala, the fishing town on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee, Mary, the one from whom Jesus expelled seven demons, Mary, one of the last to the cross, but the first to the tomb. This morning, we travel with Mary, the Magdalene, to the tomb on the first Easter. We're in John chapter 20, if you'd like to follow along. Verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. We don't know 100% why Mary is there that morning by herself, but we can make a fairly educated guess that she's there out of grief. She's still heartbroken over the death of the one who has done so much for her. Her heart had moved her feet to the tomb. But when she gets there, she discovers that the stone has been rolled away. Now, in that day, tombs were closed by this humongous cartwheel-like stone. It would have been dropped into this deep, slanting groove that was hewn out of the rock just in front of the entrance. The stone would have weighed several tons, almost impossible to remove. Now, this tomb also happened to be sealed by the Roman government with two Roman guards stationed in front to prevent any tampering of the body. The translation is this. No one is getting in and no body is getting out. But like many things this first Easter morning, hope springs. The stone has been rolled away. Verse 2. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. The miracle of Easter is about what is not there that morning, namely the body of Jesus. The tomb is empty. So then Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
If you have ears to hear, this is comedic gold, right? So John is the one writing this. This is why he's using reference like the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loves. And maybe it wasn't kosher back then to brag upon oneself. But what we gather is that John is a superior athlete to Peter. I heard he's a member down at the Mount of Olives CrossFit box. He outruns Peter to the tomb, and I can imagine Peter many years later as he reads this account saying, John, really? Like, this literally adds nothing to the narrative. To which he replies, except that I'm faster. And verse 6, Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the others, but folded up in a place by itself. Peter might not be as quick, but he doesn't lack courage. He walks right in, and he discovers the burial cloths lying there. They appear as if the body has just evaporated in between them. They're not disheveled. They're not disarranged. Something miraculous is afoot here. Verse 8, then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed. So John goes in, and he sees the claws lying there, and he believes, simple and plain. But he doesn't understand the magnitude of what it is he's seeing. Verse 9, for as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They didn't understand all the implications from the Old Testament of why Jesus had to be resurrected, how he, why he had to rise from the grave, how from Moses and the law and the prophets, how his resurrection fulfilled all those prophecies. At this point, they had only had 30 seconds to process. Luke 24 says that Peter then went home marveling at what had happened. Something cosmic had shifted for both John and for Peter. Now we enter into Mary's story in earnest. So Mary, verse 11, stood weeping outside of the tomb. And as she stooped in to look, she's weeping. Remember, Jesus had done so much for her. He had kicked out seven demons that had been tormenting her. She's been loyal to him ever since then. She's one of the last at the crucifixion. She's the first to the tomb on this day. She's weeping because he had changed her life. She's heartbroken. She's in immense grief. And as she peers in, verse 12, she sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why is it that you are weeping? Well, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put his body. Anytime we see an angel in the Gospels, they are bringing good news or comfort, news that Elizabeth and Mary would be with child. News that God would save Joseph, Mary, and Jesus from Herod. Sent to comfort Jesus in the desert and just before his death. Now we see two angels are sent seemingly just for Mary 
as we heard in Luke, these other women. Full stop. These angels were not there when Peter and John were there. So God reserves these angels for Mary and these other women. Not the disciples. Not the ones whom children and islands and churches are named after. But Mary Magdalene and these other women present. She responds with the devoted confession, they have taken my Lord and I do not know where they've put him. We see that she loves him deeply. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She's in the middle of an ugly cry, which is probably why she can't see him. But then in verse 15, he says, woman, why is it that you are weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where and I will take him. Through Mary's present lens, she has much to weep over. And then wonder of wonders, he speaks her name, Mary. She hears her name and she turns around and she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Only two words spoken in this incredible moment, but they say so much to us today. She couldn't see that it was him, but when he spoke, she knew instantly who it was. She knew the good shepherd's voice, and he knew her. When he spoke her name, it was an arrow straight to her heart. And I wonder for us this morning, have you ever heard the king of the universe speak your name? Have you longed to hear him speak your name? Because if you would hear it, your soul, your thirsty soul would be satisfied. I wonder if you've heard his voice earlier in your life, but lately, it's been a while. It's been a while since you've turned around to listen to him speak more to you. In the show The Chosen, uh, if you've seen it, there's a scene where Jesus calls Mary by name. And it starts to change her life in that instant. But then she goes back to her old ways and we find her back in front of Jesus sometime later. She's full of shame and in suffering, she has a hard time letting him in. She says, I just don't think I can do it. I don't think I can live up to it. I cannot repay you. How could I leave you? How could I go back to the things that I was doing before? I just can't live up to it. And Jesus tenderly says, well, Mary, that's true. You can't do it. I want your heart, Mary. 
the Father wants your heart. Then he says, look up. Look at me, Mary. I forgive you. Then he goes to embrace her and he says, it's over. The resurrected Lord knows you by name. He's known your name for a very long time, in fact. Before you were even born, And that same one loves you deeply. You see, it's not good news if Mary shows up to Jesus and she confesses rightly, Lord, why did I leave you? Why did I forsake you? Why did I go back to my old ways? I don't think I have what it takes. I can't repay you. To which Jesus replies, you're right. But if you just worked really hard, if you went to the right synagogue, if you got in with the right people and you changed your pedigree and you had the right amount of this or that, then I would accept you. That's not good news. That's religion. The God of the universe is risen, and he's called each of us by name. As we close, we move towards Holy Communion this morning. I want to read some verses over us. He will swallow up death forever. I invite you to close your eyes so you can hear better. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace he paid. By his very wounds we are healed. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. You can open your eyes. Friends, we are Easter people. The king of the universe has spoken. Let's come to him now.